0: Coming up on Life as a Festival.
1: My main thesis is that the carnivalesque from the status quo, which is needed. I'm not, I don't want to be a leftist a chauvinist. The status quo carnival is needed as a gateway. The revolutionary carnival is even more needed. But the carnival by its structure of turning things inside out, of allowing people to take off their mask and putting on demonic mask, sexual mask, allowing them space to fill out their most profane fantasies, and then to also turn upside down the sacred order and the profane, that that itself is innately political because it has political consequences later. The status quo and the revolutionary carnival are actually much more symbiotic. There's a lot of channels, back channels between them. And so when I saw that, Burning Man's role both in the global capitalist order, but then in my own life became a lot clearer. And I actually began to appreciate Burning Man more for what it is rather than what I wanted it to be.
2: Hello, my friends and fellow travelers, my fellow hedonic adventurers. Could you believe that the carnival is a necessary element of social movements? For real. According to today's guest, Professor Nick Powers, by centering fun, sacrilege, and even the grotesque, we inoculate social justice against dogmatism and self-righteousness and keep it from becoming co-opted. I know, right? On the show, Nick and I rap about our early days as insufferable young activists, which we both in our own ways were, and our mutual love of Burning Man, where he co-founded the People of Color Camp. Nick breaks down the concept of the carnivalesque and the three types of carnivals, which are reactionary, status quo, and revolutionary. We outline a path forward using festivals for social change, specifically for three categories of people, the fiery young activist, the burnt out revolutionary, and the complacent progressive. We discuss how diversity finally arrived at Burning Man and finally why the white working class is the prodigal son of history. So Dr. Nicholas Powers, PhD, is a novelist, poet, journalist, and professor living in New York. He is a tenured associate professor of literature at SUNY Old Westbury. His political writing has appeared in Truth Out, The Independent, Catalyst, Raw Story, Business Insider, Lucid News, The Village Voice, and Vibe. His books include Theater of War, The Ground Below Zero, 9-11 to Burning Man, New Orleans to Darfur, Haiti to Occupy Wall Street, and Thirst. It was such an honor to visit Nick in his home in Brooklyn to have this conversation. And the first time on this show that we get deeply political while making sure that life remains a festival. So without further ado, here's Nick. (music)
0: powers. Thank you, sir. Welcome to Life is a Festival. <laughs> Thank a, you. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Well, it's a pleasure to be in your home here in Brooklyn. So
1: you are a professor. Where do you teach? Uh, I teach literature. Mostly what I teach in the classroom is for students to trust themselves. So they come in and, you know, I'm like the the cliche, like a right-wing cliche, the cultural Marxist with a Maxwell 1990s Afro. And the first thing I teach them is like, I, I don't want you to mirror my politics that would be really easy for both of us i said i usually teach them new criticism and reader response theory and i said please approach this text as a mirror to discover more of who you are as a reader and that's that's where it really begins with me and the students so i'm teaching caribbean literature now and we did reader response and new criticism and then We started going into other forms of literary criticism and they opened up these books and they saw the layers, the deeper layers of meaning inside The Farming of Bones by the Haitian author Edwidge Danticat, The Other Side of Paradise by the lesbian black poet Stacey Ann Chin from Jamaica. And then we did the literature of the plague. So we did the classic Albert Camus' La Peste. Now we're doing José Saramogo's The Nobel Prize winner, Blindness. We did Daniel Defoe's A Journal of the Year of the Plague in London from 1665, so again, we use new criticism, we use reader response, then we use Marxism, then we use feminism. And at the end of the semester, or during the course of the semester, I, I look at the rough drafts, I correct the rough drafts, I usually give them really sadistic grades. They get, they get pain on their papers. But when they rewrite them, they're actually better. And by the end of the semester, their writing skills have gone up, and their reading skills have gone up. And their sense of confidence to actually defy me and have their own point of view goes up. So at the end, they actually become more complete human beings.
0: Mm. You remind me of a man named Dr. Elmer Griffin mm. at Occidental College. The classes I took with him ended up being part of what became the critical theory and social justice department at Oxy. So I was learning about Rastafari from a Marxist lens. I studied a class on whiteness. Which made me insufferable, by the way.
1: <laughs> yes, I was yes. Insufferable. Yes, I,
0: was, I was like rah rah student revolutionary, wore a Che Guevara shirt unironically. It was wow. like, yeah. I mean, wow. this was 1999, yeah. 2000, so it was like I was part of that cliche forming. Yeah. So as a student, I was like, I am gonna save the world. Mm -hmm. I am going to upend whiteness. I went to Africa with the UN Population Fund. I was gonna be in the in the Peace Corps. I studied Swahili. I was like, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna change the world. And I'm going to redeem my whiteness Mm -hmm. and I'm going to be a good person. Yeah. And all of it was identity for me. There was a, a passionate desire to write injustice, certainly, but that was eclipsed by the desire to project. The righteousness of being a good version of more or less straight white male, mm-hmm. more or less like fashionably bisexual, but pretty much straight. And I, I really burnt out on it. And then I sort of like ended up in Oakland playing music and realizing that I did not have transferable skills to go to Africa and like save African people, which is a horrible <laughs> a thing. <horrible> thing. <laughs> it's a horrible thing, this sort of white savior complex thing. And I was just so I exhausted. Mean, it worked for Bono. But but Yeah, but Bono was a rock star first. Yes, first. You know? I needed to become a rock star before I could then save Africa. Yeah. I, I decided that what I was most interested in was, was creating community where I was. Yeah. Ultimately, I found Burning Man mm. as what I felt at the time was a vehicle for change. And I didn't approach Burning Man as an activist. I went to Burning Man and did a bunch of drugs. But I saw Burning Man as this... If people could go and they could experience non-default culture, decommodified culture, they could be in a place where they could really express themselves, that that could be a vehicle for change. And for a time, I really deeply believed that festivals as a technology, just by virtue of themselves, would change the world. And so that sort of activism that I became exhausted by went into this naive belief that the festival would change things. I was there. You were there? Well, yeah, let's, let's start with that because that place of that belief, that Pollyanna trust mm-hmm. in the kumbaya, let's all just love each other yeah. and then love will permeate into all of these spaces. I don't think that that's right, but I haven't given up on the festival.
1: I thought pleasure would sell the revolution to the masses of people and that if they just experienced good quality pleasure and joy and ethical hedonism that was post-capitalist, that didn't have a price tag on it. You went to Burning Man, you bartered or you gave gifts that you know we would never wanna go back to the default world. And we would go on a general strike against the default world and it would just collapse like a house of cards at a poker table. And that was my first experience of my first burn in 2002. I went there and this was after I was born in New York. I came back to New York I mean, in August, 2001, September happens. That whole year, all of us are walking in the shadows of Absent Towers. And we're kind of carrying the ghost of 3,000 some people who had died. And so when I went to Burning Man, I, at first, was very, very angry. I was, I felt this rage at how happy people were because my city was, still had rubble in it. it was this is 2002. 2002. And I remember... I, I also wasn't sufferable. I wore all black and I asked someone to give me a white rope in it and I made this white rope around my neck, right? And I just walked around and people were freaked out in my camp. But I had this one brother who was there and he knew where I was coming from. And he said, are you okay? And I was like, I, I'm just not feeling this. And as I walked back to my tent, I was actually thinking of leaving Burning Man. And then this guy saw me. He goes, hey, man, I saw you walking around with a rope around your neck. And uh, he said his name was Tony. He had a very deep New York accent, very deep Italian accent. And he goes, um, you know, are you okay? And I told him, I was like, nah, you know how it is. And we both knew, right? So he came and he gave me acid and ecstasy. And he said, like, it's not a cure-all, but I think, I think you need to do this. Had, had you done either of those substances before? I've done, I did acid by that point, but not ecstasy and never together. I didn't candy flip. And I took them both and i just kept walking it was like forrest gump at burning man i just kept walking and i walked past the trash fence and i just walked way out into the desert and the stars became confetti and they just started falling all around me and i cried and i you know let it all out and when i came back to the playa back to the city there was a big fire a big blazing inferno and i danced around it and i just danced and i sweat and i was naked and dancing and sweating and other people were dancing and sweating and naked and We almost looked like Disney's Night on Bald Mountain. It was just all these shadows around the fire. And we were all with just these like shadows spilling around the fire. And when I left Burning Man and I came back to the New York, I could feel that my body was much more open. And I came back to the end of my graduate school. So I was in graduate school at 34th Street, the, the Graduate Center, the big complex right there. And right next to it was the Empire State Building. And in the graduate school courses, at that particular moment, I was looking at a lot of Marxist literary criticism. And I was enthralled by the idea of this post-capitalist society, but I had just come back from Burning Man. And I felt I had briefly experienced what life after, beyond, or maybe hidden to the side of capitalism was. And I became this kind of Burning Man evangelical. I was just saying, Life without capitalism is possible. I was just, I was waving the Burning Man fire everywhere I went. And I was so arrogant and so insufferable and such a fucking prick. And I'm lucky that people were very kind of, they were half bewildered, half curious and half appalled by everything that I was saying. How old were you at that time? Let me see. I was, I must've been 21. Like, was I 24?
0: Five, twenty-six, something like that. Yeah, that's that's a perfect time to be insufferable about one's ideologies. Yeah, age, and I think that you know, as you say that, I was around that age, also insufferable. We do have to love those versions of ourselves. Yeah, but it's it's part of the journey, and we have to love those when we come in contact with those people who are in that phase. Is to love that passion. Yeah, and there's a certain kind of like fuel in the social fire that that comes from those identities, and also insufferable and can sometimes work counter to the goals themselves because it ends up emphasizing more tribalism in certain cases. So I have a friend who is Gen Z and she has been ostracized from a group of her friends for not being woke enough. Mm. And to me, she is quite woke. I think she's doing a wonderful job being yeah. woke and I'm, and I'm proud of her and she's reading all the things and she's doing all the things, but she's been ostracized. And in part because of her identity. She's white. She's very into paganism and and she's very into like northern European paganism, which I think is like, that's so cool. Those are your roots. Go for it. Yeah, that. go for it. Yeah. But that that was called cultural appropriation. It's like a whole mess of yeah. the kind of righteousness of this unfortunate leftist purification ritual. Yeah. And I'm I'm getting on a tangent here, so let me rein it back in. Um, <laughs> ride that horse, man, ride the horse. But what I think that we need is the kind of eldership. And within the rave scene, you and I are certainly elders, but we need the kind of eldership that helps people cultivate the best parts of that passion and indeed even that rage and use it efficaciously within the balance of their own growth, healing, embodiment their own joy, their own passion, to then have the the right slice of their life to pursue activism in a meaningful way Mm. and in a way that is properly collaborative. And as we look at our big theme today, we're going to talk about this idea of the carnivalesque. And I wonder if we can use some of these themes that you have deeply studied as a way of offering perhaps some structure to the activist who also wants to party. Mm. let's have a dancing revolution. And you, sir, yeah. I am trusting to guide us on this because you are more deeply studied than I. And my job is to ask the questions. So <laughs> I'll take some responsibility, yeah. but let's, let's do this together.
1: Yeah, and when you say that about, about your friend, the young white woman who was ostracized for cultural appropriation, looking at Northern, Euro- Northern European pagan traditions. And I think the best thing for me is to kind of just own up to like, I was that but I was that and I would say in the late 90s and early 2000s, that this idea of left puritanism is not something new. I remember walking across the street when I had these dreads and I was like, Mr. Dread, I was Dread, I was Mr. Dread. And I remember seeing a, a white woman who also had dreads crossing the street and she was like, nice dreads. And I could tell she wanted me to, you know, and I was just like, ugh, reply and say back to her. But I thought, I didn't have the words "cultural appropriation," but I was like, "How dare you have these dreads? These don't belong to you, right?" And then it reminded me a little bit of the scene in Malcolm X's autobiography, where there was after one of his lectures at a college, a white woman comes up to him and, and she says, very sincerely, "Like, look, I want to help." And this is like the nineteen. I remember is, this scene. I, I want to help, and she's like, "What can I do?" And he looked at her in a very cold Malcolm X way. He said, "Nothing." walked off, and she was broken. Later on, maybe after he went to Mecca, and he just saw Islam as this universal religion, all hues of people were there, that he thought about that young white woman who approached him and said, what can I do? And he goes, I regretted that I did that. And that, took, that gave me a lesson, that if Malcolm X could look back on a young white woman who said, I wanted to help, and realize that he was wrong in pushing her away and cutting her off, especially after he went to, to Mecca and he saw how people from all over the world, all different skin tones, hair textures, types, body shapes were all bowing to the same you know, Allah, that he himself had to embody the best parts of a universal openness and to make as many connections with other people as possible in the search for justice. And looking at his journey helped me also get out of my sectarian silo, my self-righteous mirror trap. But to push a little bit further, I had to think, well, what was so appealing about wearing the dreads and using the dreads as a whip against white allies to kind of hurt them with identity politics? And I realized that there's this saying that pain that is not transformed is transmitted.
0: Mm, Very
1: true. So very that the, the different insults, the different racist fears and aggressions that I made my way through and had to survive, whether people calling me a slur or having to get into a fight and defend myself or having to just w- watch where I was when I was in an all-white neighborhood that wasn't very friendly, the south Southie in Boston when I was in college there, other places, and just feeling watched and having to fight against that. And then on top of that, also the stories of racism that my mother was passing on to me from her life, and then the stories from her parents that they were passing. So between the stories of of my ancestors and my family, the racism that I was making my way up through, that when I finally got into the left and then grew my dreads, I realized that I was surrounded by white people who because they were aware of history that they had a masochistic position I think it leads to an unhealthy dynamic within the left because The pain that I couldn't transform into like what Malcolm did eventually, which is that every human has pain Life is pain is part of life and some of it is just an inevitable part of living but some of it is unjust pain and that If that is not transformed into a greater awareness and a larger heart for other people, then I am going to be looking on who can I hurt like I was hurt? Who can I victimize the way I was victimized? How can I transmit the pain, pay it forward? And I think sometimes what I see in the left are those of us stuck in that sadist position of then transmitting the pain that we grew up with, but now we're in positions of kind of authority or we're fetishized on the left by white leftists and we wind up getting in this kind of sadist masochist relationship with them and it winds up defining the way that we speak it winds up defining the way that we make love the way that we make friendships the way that we unmake love unmake friendships the way that we battle over small symbols and small differences in language and eventually how we fight and exile each other over cultural appropriation and have these really kind of mean and vicious internal, just violence. And in the end, I think that actually kneecaps the left. And one of the things that actually helped get me out of that, one was looking at Malcolm's journey, right, and not just Malcolm's journey, but then actually going out of what I would say my class bubble and my my family history is working class. And so I was not unfamiliar. But when I started doing major reporting, first from New Orleans when it was hit from, by Hurricane Katrina and seeing the bodies of people floating in the streets and families who had no homes and seeing little girls crying in their father's lap and not knowing where they were gonna sleep the next night and actually having to keep themselves warm by a can fire outside. And then coming back to New York, and realizing that all of my reporting didn't really help. And then in 2007, again, the Darfur genocide was kicking up and I was a professor and I had the money and I decided to go and I went. And again, I'm encountering women who were raped, gang raped in the desert, men who had bullets still lodged in their knee. And again, I wrote all this down dutifully, I did my job. And I was encountering an incredible poverty and incredible violence that nothing I could do would help. And I felt not like a hero, I felt fucking useless. But I kept thinking, something's going to change if I just keep writing. If I just keep reporting, something's going to change. And then finally, the thing that really broke me was in 2010, when I went to Haiti to Port-au-Prince after the earthquake. And I was stepping over dead bodies. And you could feel the sweet smell of decomposition and decay was in the air. And I didn't sleep. We didn't sleep. We just... There were too many people who needed too many things. We were getting people to hospitals. We were getting supplies to people. We were writing down stories. And at the end, we were just exhausted. It was me and a team of reporters and a fixer. And I was starting to see things. And finally, I was like, okay, I think I need to go. And as we were going to the airport, we saw a soccer ball. And for the first time, we're like, oh, yeah, let's play some soccer, man. We got closer, and it wasn't a soccer ball. It was a dead baby. Oof. And I looked at my fixer and I think, I gotta go. So when I came back to New York, I was suicidal for at least a couple of months. And it took a lot of healing, a lot of music, psychedelics, a lot of dancing, a lot of praying to get back from the edge of suicide. You were in your early thirties at this point? Yeah, early thirties. And when I pulled myself back, thankfully what I didn't also pull back was that arrogance because I realized I had been confronted by people who needed a lot more than my middle-class, reformist, leftist guilt-tripping of white allies. That that was this stupid adolescent psychological game that I was playing. And that there were people who were really, really, really suffering. And what they needed was not my guilt or not my sadomasochist power play, but what they needed was my strength, my clarity of mind, and my compassion and my ability to build coalitions with everyone to try to stop this from happening from other people. And that broke for me, that fever, was to, was to realize how silly and juvenile those games were compared to what, what I was actually, what was happening in the world. And then finally, when I was looking in the, in the, the black literary tradition, what I found was black intellectuals who had gone on this, a very similar journey emotionally, and Du Bois, who had this really powerful concept called double consciousness and the color line and the 20th century is defined by the color line. But after he wrote those words, he went around the world after World War II and he saw the devastation left by World War II. He came back, and I'm going to paraphrase what he said, but he said, what I thought was the color line is actually not unique to people of color. It's just the inhumanity of man against man. And everyone suffers from it. And I think he was saying this because he had been in Europe and he had seen... Europeans slaughtered each other in the trenches. You saw the after effects of the Holocaust. So he revised the color line saying it's not about just color. It's something deeper than that. And so here's Malcolm X. Here's W. Du Bois transcending through this universal worldview, being able to actually travel around the world and see their humanity, their, their, their problems reflected in other people and realizing, oh, I had to, to get beyond my personal identity and really see the world from a larger perspective. And that's what cured me of that. And I I wouldn't like to think that a whole generation of, of American left doesn't have to go through those particular experiences, but I do think that we are in one stage of a larger arc. And I think our goal is maybe as elders is to say, how can we help them get to that universal vision?
0: I'm hoping at this moment we can resurrect the value of the festival. When Obama was president, before Trump became president, I was very much in this Pollyanna view that the the festival is this vehicle that's going to change everything. And I thought that my West Coast, San Francisco liberal perspective was the path forward. As long as everyone believed in inclusivity and cognitive liberation through psychedelics, and a sexual liberation and a kind of like sensitive masculinity, that that was like, that was the key. The opioid crisis and Donald Trump, that's what kind of woke me up out of that, where it was like, oh, there's this white working class masculine rage and it makes a lot of sense to me. And here I am preaching from my privilege in San Francisco that you just need to be a little more gay and it's all going to work out. So that was the moment when I lost the belief in the festival as a thing that's going to change things. And then of course we had COVID, which kind of diminished the festival in, in its entirety for, for a bit. while. Yeah. And I've kind of felt somewhat lost during this period in terms of broader liberation. Yeah. I mean, obviously the George Floyd murder, notwithstanding, I mean that was a moment we kind of all came together and we were quite aware, but then as these as these waves happen, it kind of subsided as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that there's a way to, as I said, resurrect the festival, and by festival I mean participatory gatherings that are more diverse than they've been in the past, that are more inclusive than they've been in the past, That, that that technology and that vehicle can still be useful, and not just for personal growth in an individualistic sense, because I think that is actually a dead end. And I've really wised up to to the promise of wellness being something that's really going to take us to the kind of healed communities where we're all really thriving. But I do think that there's something in the festival. And preparing for this interview, you introduced me to this theme of the carnivalesque. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's a way of using the lens of the carnivalesque to take your experiences, and they've been quite varied. I mean you really have a lot of touch points on these different moments of suffering and triumph throughout the world. Can we revive the festival as a vehicle for social change in a meaningful way? Is the festival still valuable? I think it's the only way forward. Good. Let's do it.
1: Yeah. It's if it's really the fun. only
0: way forward, then then take yeah. us there.
1: When I came back from my first burn in two thousand and two, back to New York, it was it was like 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 Saul becoming Paul, right? The scales fell from my eyes and I actually saw the world in a very different way. That Burning Man just kind of turned my brain around in my skull. And when I looked at the world, I began to see the sources of the festival. And the sources of the festival, it seemed as if everyone was constantly spilling, like people wore the mask here in the city, they had a mask and underneath the mask or sometimes through the mask or a crack was like a laugh A kind of scatological joke people were were hornily looking at other people people were wanting to do something creative and all the different ways that people leak from their mask and i could see all of that leakage pooling in and building pressure throughout the days and the weeks and then the months and that pressure would erupt in something and so people needed some place to go and let the pressure inside out so they would go to clubs at the end of the week. And what do we do? We like take one mask off. And yeah, sometimes we put another mask on, but we're out there underneath the spinning lights. And sometimes we're doing Molly and drinking and having a good time. Or then we have larger gatherings like Halloween in New York and people go crazy. They get dressed up in all these kinds of outfits and it's very carnival-esque. So I began to see the carnival everywhere. And then I would do the research at the Graduate Center and I would look at the history of carnival throughout time. And what became pretty clear to me is that there were three different kinds of carnivals. There was the reactionary carnival and the reactionary carnival is when protectors of the dominant order through violence seek to reassert themselves or to stop change from happening. So I thought of the Zoot Suit Riots in LA, where mostly white military servicemen descended upon the, the Mexican neighborhoods and did an incredible amount of violence to kind of reassert their supremacy, their, their dominance. I think about the East St. East Louis bombing of a black neighborhood, Black Wall Street, right? By white racists dropping bombs. I thought about Kristallnacht, right? The Nazis encouraging this ransacking of Jewish homes and stores. That is a reactionary carnival. Would you say that, that the you will not replace us? That's a, yes, that's a reaction. To January 6th yeah. is like Burning Man for the right wing. That's a reactionary carnival. And it's about usually an, an ethnic or, or political majority feeling themselves, their place threatened and wanting to reassert dominance using violence. So that's one. Then the other that I saw that which, which is more common was what I would say the status quo carnival. And the status quo carnival is a carnival that allows for the release of the pressure of living in a hierarchy by the, the masses of people. And it is where they can just let cut loose.
0: And, and that, that was actually the point of carnival, right? Because it's the last gasp before the abstention of let, right, yeah. so that's when society turns on its head and you express all of that but you express it specifically to go into lent yeah. to specifically go into its opposite period of things being extremely rigid and yeah. extremely hierarchical so it was carnival was even like it was in, it was like almost designed to do exactly
1: what you're describing and right? to get people right back in line Yeah, right so the the best way to keep people in line is to let them get out of it for a little bit and then they get them right back in and that's what and in Rome it was the saturnalia festival right where the masters and slaves changed roles for a little bit in the Caribbean, it's carnival, literally right before Lent. Burning Man is a status quo festival. It is I knew
0: you were gonna say Burning Man was one. <laughs> I want Burning Man not to be one, but you're but it is. But it is it it's, it's state
1: sanctioned. If it if it was if it was truly a danger to the social order, they would have stamped it out a long time ago. Grover Norquist would not have attended. Yeah, Grover Norquist would not have attended. And so those are status quo. Coachello used to be a status quo. Lollapalooza, the regionals, those are all status quo.
0: Just a a moment on Burning Man, because we're both Burners. We both love Burning Man. Is there any aspect of Burning Man that is properly revolutionary? Is there anything that happens in there? Because the hierarchical reinforcement, the tech billionaires, the hedonism, the largesse, this is our one time of the year to do this thing. And then we go back to our tech jobs or whatever. Like I see that, but I want there to be a revolutionary spark in it.
1: Yeah, the political, the official political ideology, as far as I can tell of the status quo carnival is libertarian and hedonism. So libertarian hedonism is obviously, let me do my own thing. I have total liberty as an individual to act out my desires and especially in a hedonistic way. That, I think, is the kind of ideology that is in practice. And to answer your question specifically, so many bubbling and boiling and stewing revolutionary experiences, actions, and ideas all happen within Burning Man as a container. So it's kind of like a nuclear-powered kaleidoscope. And things are happening all the time that have revolutionary possibilities and sentiment and potential that eventually when people take that long drive and exodus out into the real world are like revolutionary pollen that goes seeds the country. So it has revolutionary potential in it and it releases the pollen upon the country, but the actual event itself is a status quo event. So it's a liminal thing for me, what's on the line for me, but it's state sanctioned and the event itself mostly is, is not Going to threaten the social order. And then the last category of carnival is the revolutionary carnival, which is illegal, doesn't have a license, it didn't get a permit from the police, it is people driven, and it is free and open to the public. So, Occupy Wall Street, the Arab Spring protests at Bahrain, the Indignados in Spain. Are, are there are there events that are not
0: so obviously political that do this? Like what's coming to me is like the free parties yes. in Europe yeah. that were like very underground, very much about liberation, but it didn't have any kind of particular political agenda per se. Yes, but it but there's a kind of there's
1: a kind of illegal freedom in it. it mm-hmm. That does that does that fall in that? Power? Yeah, it's illegal. Yes, and that's revolutionary potential. People come in, and my main thesis is that. The carnivalesque from the status quo, which is needed. I'm not, I don't want to be a leftist a chauvinist. The status quo carnival is needed as a gateway. The revolutionary carnival is even more needed. But the carnival by its structure of turning things inside out, of allowing people to take off their mask and putting on demonic mask, sexual mask, allowing them space to fill out their most profane fantasies. And then to also turn upside down the sacred order and the profane that that itself is innately political because it has political consequences later. And so the free parties to me are revolutionary, but they're revolutionary because they're not exclusive because of a price ticket and of a place. They're open to the public. And because they're open to the public, it's easier for people to see them, imitate them, just like Occupy. There was an Occupy New York at first, right? Occupy Wall Street, then there's Occupy Oakland, then there's Occupy London, then there's Occupy Brussels, then there's Occupy Phoenix, you know what I mean? Like you saw it rising because people, it was free and open to the public and everyone could go in and you could feel the powers that be, the faces on TV, feeling a little bit nervous. And it was the same thing that happened in the George Floyd protest. When you actually go to Minneapolis, they made it seem like the whole city was burning. It was basically like a couple of gas stations. It wasn't the whole city, but what they were scared was that that would become an image that would become repeated in other cities, right? So again, that was a revolutionary carnival. So I think those, when I was looking, I was like, these are the three types of carnivals that keep reappearing throughout history. And they actually have very different... Functions, But the status quo and the revolutionary carnival are actually much more symbiotic. There's a lot of channels, back channels between them. And so when I saw that, Burning Man's role both in the global capitalist order, but then in my own life became a lot clearer. And I actually began to appreciate Burning Man more for what it is rather than what I wanted it to be. It's a big organization that allows for the employment of many nomadic people that normally would not have jobs. And because of that, it actually keeps people's families together and lives afloat. And yes, it's not the Burning Man it was in 2002. It has grown much larger. And it is now a, a all-year-round organization that keeps people employed. Good. Good. We need that. And we also have revolutionary carnivals that we also need, like the George Floyd protest, et cetera, that are out of control, that aren't licensed, that are illegal. And I think that... The next step is that the carnival has to go to the trailer homes, to the hood, to the slums. Because if the poor who are oftentimes the most traumatized can have access to some of the healing pleasure of the carnival and some of the technologies of integration of the shadow of the carnival then they can even in a more powerful way be part of a larger coalition that could recreate the world into a constant carnival why isn't the
0: carnival already there and who takes it there and how is it taken there without replicating a hierarchical structure if folks like you and me are like, let's take the carnival to the slums. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the same as any kind of like messianistic
1: yeah. messianic activism? It is. Yeah, it, is. it absolutely is. And I think that that works in some ways, but it also, also has its own limits, right? So I think was it, Gramsci had the, the idea that I think had a really intense hold on the left for a while called the organic intellectual. In other words, people can't parachute in middle-class intellectuals can't parachute in and like Bono try to save the slums, right? And that organic intellectuals have to arise from the street corners, have to arise from from the Section 8 housing and through their experiences and a learning of theory, become the organizers. And I think that that is a very powerful model. But I also think that for those of us who have access to these technologies, to start making bridges means that people can meet halfway So that the organic intellectuals who are rising from the street corners, rising from Section 8 housing, aren't pushing the weight of a whole society on their shoulders by themselves. And that the others who have access to a higher, these like the carnival, can actually make these connections. And most importantly, that it gives the experience of activism as pleasure and activism as creative and love based. And the reason I think that that's important is because an activism that actually approaches the streets with creativity and art and nonviolence has a greater chance of winning over the middle classes. And if you can approach the larger world in that way, then you can actually build a large enough coalition that some of the things that we need to have changed just as a species shifting away from fossil fuels, abolishing poverty, bringing back a child tax credit so kids aren't starving to death, having renewable green fueled mass transit, free college, free healthcare. These basic containers, universal basic income, which we had briefly during COVID, these basic policy changes that would make a more workers' democracy in the United States and a workers' democracy throughout the world would be a container in which you could have the carnival as the dominant form of culture. But it needs the container of a workers' democracy. And you can't have a workers' democracy if workers are constantly in a state of trauma, constantly being oppressed, and don't have access to a carnival that allows for the burning away of masks for the healing of the poison of hatred and rage, and for a larger universal vision that allows us to connect with each other rather than going into these identity silos.
0: Okay, so amongst our listeners, there are at least three categories that we've touched on. Certainly more, but there are at least three. There's the young revolutionary banging the rocks together that we talked about. There's the former revolutionary privileged person such as myself who has kind of gotten exhausted by feeling like they're wrong about everything and wants to help but is kind of a little bit sheepishly like well I'm going to put my energy yeah. into a more local thing, I'll donate some money I'll march but I, how do I fit this in my life and there's a person such as yourself who has a longer history of activism who really doesn't have the privilege to ignore it and who is engaging on a regular basis. Okay so we have at least three of these categories that we've touched upon in this conversation in the audience the picture you paint is beautiful, even utopic, right? And we must be aware of utopic visions. However, striving together is always is always better than doing nothing. But you paint a picture of something that to me makes sense and seems like, yeah, like I would like the world to be more that way. I do not see a path from here to there clearly. And perhaps it's because I'm sort of fatigued and maybe a little bit cynical at this, at this point, particular age and and just viewing the kind of political currents in the world at the moment, can you speak to, and perhaps this is a tall order, but if you are able to, can you speak to what you feel the path forward is in terms of actionable choices for members of these three categories of audience members Mm. who are currently listening to this conversation and like myself are saying, fuck yes, let's do that. I want that. I want to make that happen. Of these three different categories, each with a different kind of access point, the fervor of the youthful rage against injustice, the privilege, mm. but somewhat of the, of the worn down quality, yeah. and also an activist such as yourself, a teacher, someone who has access to a lot of different communities and perspectives. Can you give us a path forward for each of these three
1: people? I'd say that for the young, because I think about my own students, but also I think about my son. And I'd say for the youthful activist who's on fire, but also kind of self-flagellating. First thing I would say is like, just put down the whip. I mean, save that for your kink play. But <laughs> put down the whip. It's not. It doesn't help. That'll be for another episode. That'll be another we'll tell you, episode. About what to do with the whip on another. Yeah. Episode. Or actually, that's, that's one of the powerful things about kind of sexual sophistication and fetish. If you're really feeling that, turn that into kind of some kind of kink play, and I bet you you can get through it a lot quicker. But I would I would just say, as a man of color with a child who's gonna long outlive me, I don't want your guilt. I don't need your guilt because. It's not original. It's not helpful. It's also, it opens up a way for, for a, a sadism on my part that is unhealthy for me to play.
0: And complacency on mine.
1: Yeah. What I want for me from that young activist is for us to see that we are trying to create a world that we may not live long enough to even see. And I would say that the lesson that I learned from the black literary tradition and the long black freedom struggle is that people were envisioning a time of freedom before it existed. So that we need to always keep fighting in, the, in this moment, but to keep your fire burning in a sustainable way And the best fuel I've always found for that was love, not guilt, because you're gonna get burnt out on guilt, but it was love. And that I know I want this world that I envision to be real because it is the world, the only world that I could see my son thriving in. And because I love him so much, I love that world that will give him a chance to live. And then when I'm looking around and I see all the other kids at the playground, of all colors, all races, I want them to have that world too. So I would say that put down the guilt and just pick up the love. And when you see people trying to kind of flex cultural appropriation, obviously it's a, it's a valid definition, it's a valid criticism, but when it's used to flex on people in a kind of mean-spirited asshole way, I think it's okay to call out toxic activism, to say this is actually not healthy for the larger revolution. Toxic activism where you see things only in good and evil in a binary Manichian way, where you don't see gray, you don't see nuance, and you're trying to take out your own history of hurt on someone else from whatever angle, person of color, woman, trans, gay, poor, disabled, whatever position, if that's what you're doing, that's toxic activism. It's actually not helpful for the community and they got to get called in on that. For the person who is burnt out, Again, I would say, what is it that makes you love the world the most? Connection, touch, honesty.
0: Considering we both got a little burnt out, do yeah. you mean the masochistic burnt out or the sadistic burnt out in this? I don't know if that's the right short I would say, to use. No, for, no, it's, for, it's, it's for fair. The, but for, I mean it not for the person, I mean for the style of
1: burnout. For the style of burnout. I think for the masochistic, realize that I think probably have to go on a journey of forgiveness and a little bit of humor, being like, look, we were all a little fucked up. Like that person was fucked up because of the shit they went through. I was fucked up because of the history that I inherited. It's not, it's not our fault. It's our responsibility to change the world, but it's not our fault about what happened. And I have to forgive myself for being insufferable and also forgive the other people for basically being identity assholes. Look, none of us are perfect and people are flawed even in their righteousness. So I think forgiveness... And realizing we were trying our best and we were, we were flawed people trying our best. And no surprise, we had very mixed results. And then for the sadist, sadistic person. Just before, you, yeah. just before you go to that,
0: I just want to double click on humor. Yeah. Which is double click is even a funny thing to say. I know. <laughs> it is. It's perfect though. No, it's, it's so, it's so cool. tacky. I just want to double click on humor, please. Humor, 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 humor. To me, it's like when we're trying to shuffle off some of this like guilt privilege is penance, I think there's never enough penance. Like there's no- I was raised Catholic, man. Yeah, there's no redemption for it. But there's a humility in humor, especially playful, self-deprecating humor, which if you listen to this podcast is my favorite, (laughs) is to be like, wow, I am here, I've been here. And the humor kind of like, the humor cleans more swiftly and more joyfully than the kind of absolution of someone saying, no, you are good. The humor is to say, no, no one is good. The humor is to say, let's make fun of and make light of the way that it is, the way that we have failed to clear the way to try again with joy and presence. And so if I can make fun of myself for this journey that I've been on, then that kind of cleans the way to be like, okay, But what now? Yeah. What's the choice now? That's the thing. And so, and before we move on to this kind of the burnout sadist position, because we're talking about pathways forward, I just wanna be like really clear for someone who's in my position, and I think a lot of people who listen to this are in my position that were activists when they were younger, got burnt out about it, got burnt out about feelings like their identity was so wrong, and just don't want to have the identity conversation at all because it triggers these wounds of of I'm never gonna be redeemed by for my shitty identity. To just tying that back into bringing the carnival, can you offer some, you said humor is, is really valuable, forgiveness is really valuable, but also when we use the humor and the forgiveness to kind of clear away, yeah. what are the steps now? What is the, what, how do we re-engage our effort yeah. in a more playful, more festival-based activism for someone like me and for listeners who, who identify with, with my experience?
1: Yeah, I'm thinking immediately, I always think about like street parties, more street parties, you know, where everyone's invited. And if someone comes at me and they're like, you're doing this and you're not doing this right. Also, just be like, you know what? You don't have to be in a team with everyone. Like sometimes you just can't work with some people because they're not looking necessarily to build. They're always looking for some kind of psychodrama. For me, I'm just, I think about the festival and the festivals that I've been in. I think about Occupy City Hall and the images of George Floyd that were being painted and the, and the house music. And I took my son there and we were dancing there and you know, talking to the people about all their journeys. And I would say also just listening to people, having a good time, drinking, smoking some good weed, but then having moments where you really listen to someone's journey and, and to kind of open your, imagine your ear, your heart has grown a big ear and you're offering them a, a listening without judgment. So maybe they can talk without feeling like they have to pretend. And that kind of conversation, like an open heart conversation. Like
0: our conversation right now? Like our conversation, Okay, yeah. good,
1: because I want to know I'm doing something. Yeah, we're doing it like this. <laughs> oh, I no, think we're doing is,
0: something good today.
1: Yeah, when people get to a place where they can trust each other, then the fun really starts. Yeah. Then you're like, oh, okay, I can be silly about my shit. Like, it's not a big deal. For me, I'm always thinking more, more everything outside, especially after COVID. I think we, all, we have to relearn how to be with each other in the flesh outside. Like the fact that you came to my house so we can have a face-to-face podcast is to me, it heals my body and mind so much more than if we did this over Zoom.
0: No way I was going to do this over Zoom. Yeah.
1: That's, I really wanted to do it in yeah. person in your home yeah.
0: because I want to feel you and I want yeah. to be with you and I want to problem solve with our bodies and yeah. with our spirit and with our joy. And I, I'm sorry, you just can't quite get that in a 2D screen.
1: I would, I would, I would say for both the young fiery activist and the, the burnt out one, that one cure that we need is, is in real life. Cause we have been calculated and swiftly kind of put into these boxes behind the screen. It's almost like Foucault's Panopticon, mm. you know, except like all of us have our little, like our cell phones are our prison cell. And there's this wildness that happens when you actually have face-to-face. So I think face-to-face cures a lot more <laughs> than you realize it goes quick, right? And for the, for the sadistic thing, I would say I, just, I look in the mirror and I'm just like, oh my God, every day I'm so full of shit.
0: So humor too.
1: Humor too. Like, I, like yeah, I fuck up every day. I totally betray my ideals every day. Some ideals need to be betrayed because they need to be thrown out the window. And I look at myself and I was like, I cannot, cannot come for someone without like if anyone hired a private detective and looked into my life I am so messy you know (laughs) nothing illegal but definitely messy and I I think I got tired of wearing the mask of the pure militant to enact a, a sadistic and masochistist ritual with white allies when I know I wasn't living up to that ideal and that it became more of a substitute pleasure, but then it also became more of a burden. And I felt more and more alienated from who I really was in my real life because the kind of pure militant position grants a lot of social power, a lot of status, but it comes to the part where I feel more and more alienated from the fact that I am really messy and confused and complicit and hypocritical. And that when I don't put that out there, then I yeah I get trapped inside the mask. And so for me, one of the great ways of, of releasing that dynamic also frees me to be who I really, really am. And that's when I do reach for surrealism and absurdity and humor and silliness and love and forgiveness and grace as ways of being like, thanks, I, I needed that too. And I can give that now.
0: There's kind of a BDSM sort of like metaphor that's been joyfully running through our conversation. No, yeah, yeah. Not to say that these people are themselves masochists or sadists, but a way of engaging with the pain of of injustice. But that's
1: the thing, is that you know, it's funny, is that I think maybe one of the, the like the little secrets is for those of us, at least for me, you know, growing up with with my mom and family telling me the histories of our family that. For those of us of color, at least I can speak for me, I feel incredible loyalty to the ghost of the dead. And I am in an s relationship with my ancestors. Like they beat the shit out of me all the time. They're like, I was, I was a slave. I was colonized by the Spanish. They burnt my huts. They killed my gods. They stuffed Spanish down my throat. And I was on the middle passage and they're like, what are you doing with your freedom? And in the middle of the night, they walk into my room and they just flail, they take their chains and they just flail the shit out of me. And it's like, but I'm like getting beaten by like the chains of my ancestors. Like, well, what do I need to do? And then the other part is when I think about the sacrifices that they made and the struggles that they've made and some of the triumphs that they eked out to let me live the life that I have. I get scared because if I step up in that way, well, who's gonna come for me? Who's, who's gonna aim at me? How am I gonna get attacked? And that's terrifying when I look at those who got shot down or put in jail. With tr- I'm like and the, the BLM protesters who got hit by cars. I'm like, oh, I don't wanna get hit by a car. <laughs> and so there's this fear. And then you feel the fear and then you, then you get scared. And then that fear makes you feel ashamed. And then that shame you feel unworthy of the shame because you're like, but the ancestors did all this and they're, are they stronger than me? Am I always going to be measuring myself against ghosts? So it's a sadomasochist relationship to the, to the dead. And it's a hard one. And I think part of it is, is the unnecessary myth-making of the ancestors as if they were all like Alberto Campos, the independent Puerto Rican, or, you know, Frederick Douglass or Asada or Malcolm X, like they weren't. There was lots of people who were just going to buy to get along, and that's the that's the thing about reading literature. It gets you away from the big names to like the everyday people, and there's plenty of people who were compromised, They're like. And I was like, oh, okay, so I'm not the only one who was compromised and complicit and afraid. Some people just did along to get along, and so yeah, I, I, the the BDSM relationship to the past is real, and I think also that's why I I really I love I love Burning Man and I love the festival in general. Burning Man is my main main gates as the Royal road. It's the kind of crown jewel of the global festival culture, but there's so many other festivals. And there are times when I find dust in my closet and I literally like, I put it on my head like Ash Wednesday. (laughs) I love Burning Man. I love it so much that if I smell that alkaline smell, you know, like my dick gets hard and my ass gets moist and I'm like, my nipples get, I'm like, this is the shit. I love, I love even the smell of it. And I love Burning Man so much because there I feel such a degree of freedom that i don't feel elsewhere and i'm pretty sure other people who see that light at the end of the tunnel they're like that's what we're going to we want to feel that freedom and when i'm at, at the burn especially now with my camp and there's definitely a lot more people of color there it feels so so beautiful and one of the most recent really nice moments i had was the afro pick there was this big afro pick on the playa oh, yeah yeah yeah, that was a great and place. i actually had I actually had malcolm x playing on the speakers mm. and it was amazing because like I was standing there in the the middle of the desert, underneath this big, beautiful Afro pick, and I have an Afro pick right in the fucking bathroom. And I was listening to Malcolm X in the desert, and I thought, "Yeah, this is right. This and this, and I think that was the beauty. And I really appreciate the DEI work that the Borg did. That's the beauty of integrating. Say what the DEI work is: diversity, equity, inclusion, and just trying to get more people of color at Burning Man. And that's when I was like, oh, this is perfect because this is what integration really does. It brings radical new art. So you can have these euphoric experiences that really connect you. Cause I remember there was the Afro pic there and, and, and just, just being like astounded like that this was the, and then going to the Ashe and seeing like two, 300 black people. And everyone was just like vibing on the music and it was just so powerful. And that, that, that power that, that I felt there I thought that finally felt the burn had arrived. Like we had, diversity had really arrived at the burn. And I thought how much beautiful it would be if the burn then connected with, in some kind of official way with carnival, right? And then like there was this like channels between it and the carnival within the Caribbean. And then what about the deep house music scene filled with black and Latino folks in in Newark, and Chicago, and New York, like this really deep long house music tradition. And then all these other festivals. And then I thought, like, look, we're talking about these interconnections between all of these different festivals and making some kind of official pipeline. And then that's what led me to think, well, what if the playa is more like a cradle? And it took 20-some years, but maybe Burning Man and all these other carnivals are ready to leave the cradle and to actually, as, a, as an adult, now go into the place where they haven't gone to yet and go into the cities and go into the left behind places and really start to establish itself as a culture in the city and make a big space and saying, this is the next phase of our lives. This is the next phase of the life of our nation or the life of the world. Carnival isn't just a thing that to release steam or it comes up in these little sputtering flames, but it's now it's going to be how we live. And that freedom that I felt on the playa, I just wanted to feel that for everyone all the time. And, and that's what really drives, drives that joy because then all of these, I would say kind of symbolic, middle-classy reformist political debates, I think they're gonna, they're gonna be like dried leaves on trees during the fall. Like I just feel like that's gonna wither away because we're gonna be in such a different type of world in different, in a new way of relating to each other, that those old conversations and those old worries and those old—they're just gonna fade away, and we're gonna have to learn how to relate to each other in a whole new, like, f- more free way, rather than this these kind of squirrely little games that we're playing, these S and M games that we're playing with each other now. So that's what I—that's I think why why I love the burn so much. I got a sense of of a beautiful freedom there that I experienced in other revolutionary carnivals like Occupy and BLM and and I'm greedy I just I want more of that and I want my son to have it because I'm kind of getting long in years and he he's going to be here and hopefully I can give him a sibling and so him and and his sibling are going to be here long long after I'm gone and I want to somehow give them that world
0: Well, I think that just in this conversation today, we're talking about maps and we're talking about how we can be more connected and together in creating that world. And that uh-huh. Burning Man is still a valuable tool. Uh-huh. We've got issues with climate and we've always had issues with inclusivity.
1: Yeah.
0: Thankfully both of those are changing and I, I appreciate the org's efforts in that direction. Yeah. And I want to draw our listeners' attention to Burners Without Borders. If you're yeah. not aware mm-hmm. if you're not aware. The work of Burners Without Borders is is my favorite Burning Man into the world, as you were in Haiti, as you were in New Orleans, okay. those folks really go and they really bring this culture in the way that we're describing now. And and I had an, I did an interview with uh, Christopher Breedlove about the experience of the founding of Burners Without Borders, responding to Hurricane Katrina, and the need in those disaster environments to have community spaces, to have art, to have gathering around the fire. And I think Burning Man can offer that if it's brought. To these different spaces in a, yeah. in a wise way, and and anyone listening to this podcast, there's ways to plug in. So burners Without borders is one. Are there other briefly? Are there other ways for burners to plug in organizations? I know that mm. you were a co-founder of the People of Color Camp at Burning yeah. Man. Yeah, you know, I really want to offer actionable tools, not just philosophy, but like yeah. I will now do this thing. Are there places to plug in for burners and other? other fans
1: of the carnival to get involved? In every city, there are burner camps and then people join those. I think in this way, I almost kind of default to like an earlier, some of my earlier politics which were more nationalist. And I think, I actually think new organizations have to be created. Like I think the actionable ideas is to say, what is it, an appealing vision and things that we can actually do and, and kind of spread the good word. And I think actually, I think we may need new organizations because I don't know right now of organizations that are pointing in this particular direction, right? So obviously you have theme camps. I've got a theme camp. We'll do fundraisers. That's not enough. There are already pre-existing political organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America are making headway, but that's not enough. And also they're not very, it's not a party thing. It's more like hard traditional political organizing. There are artist communities in focus more on art, but that's not enough. So, I actually feel that to borrow a book title, a really famous book, "The Beautiful Ones Are Not Yet Born," right? And it was a beautiful novel, a West African novel, about right after independence from colonial rule. And he said he got that title from a bus, right? It was spray painted on a bus. And so I feel like, yeah, the beautiful ones are not yet born. Like I think we need new organizations that are committed to bringing the carnival to the street and making it accessible, but beyond that, making it a container so that this vision can start to crystallize and can be maintained, even when the physical carnival is not actually there.
0: You're a professor and you teach, and you have been teaching today in a beautiful way, in a way that uses your own story vulnerably, which is my favorite way to teach. For the listeners who are in addition, We're talking about direct engagement. For the listeners who want to learn more about some of the topics we talked about, obviously we haven't had enough time to go super deep on kind of the literary underpinnings of this idea of the carnivalesque. Are there some resources that you would suggest reading or getting engaged in that we can put in the show notes for listeners who are like, yes, this is exactly what I want to be learning about. I want to be more deeply studied in these matters. Can you give us some stuff that would be fun for people to read? Okay, so I don't know... Including your book? Yeah. You got to start with your
1: book. So the main book, I think, that shows this journey is The Ground Below Zero. So The Ground Below Zero is a book of reportage and autobiographical vignettes from 9-11 to Burning Man, then New Orleans to Darfur, then Haiti to Occupy Wall Street. So it covers basically from 2001 to 2012. And it covers a lot of these ideas, these experiences. So Ground Below Zero. Will you be writing another book since next finished on 2012, we got another 10 years. We got another one, yeah, 10 years. The next one's called Exile in the Promised Land. And that's in a way about becoming a father during a time of Black Lives Matters and having a son of color, right? Black and Puerto Rican son. And shedding a Peter Pan complex, a Don Juan complex, and kind of giving a nod to both you and and Ian McKenzie, right? And kind of getting out of a self-obsessed masculinity, kind of like a narcissistic trapped in the mirror, and breaking that mirror. And being to able be clear, to- I've not done that yet. I'm just working on it. <laughs> I think you think you're pretty good. <laughs> I've got a lot of
0: looking. I've been looking in the mirror, but we're still we're still got to break it. Right. Imagine if he like reaches out and he's, he
1: grabs you. I'd be like, it was only a matter of time.
0: It was only a matter of time. <laughs> it's like I knew you were coming for me. Yeah. He, I, I was the I was the reflection all along.
1: Yeah. Oh. So exile in the promised land. That'll that's that'll be the next one. Right now, I'm writing a book. Recently, got that was I was reached out to by a publisher to write a book called Tripping on Race about psychedelics and race we're going to have to do another
0: conversation about you and psychedelics. Yeah. I knew there wouldn't be time to do it today, yeah. but there's a whole nother thread about your work in psychedelics that, yeah. So so and you'll be writing on the themes that you've been speaking about and yeah. horizons and elsewhere.
1: Yeah, actually, yeah. Beginning with a kind of a fictional take on what would happen if psychedelics actually had revolutionary import on the world, like how it would liberate people, but not just, to, like you said, go back to their jobs, their homes, their names, but... Want a better world for themselves. And so there's a fictional story within that. And then there's also, as you can imagine, a a history of psychedelics, both pre colonial, post colonial, psychedelics in 1968, and now obviously the psychedelic renaissance. But using tongue in cheek, there's a section where Tupac takes the DeLorean time machine. And takes Charlemagne, the god from the Breakfast Club, back to ancient Greeks and the the Mayan Empire, and just shows Charlemagne like all the different ways that the drugs were taken. How far through this book are you? I want about one hundred fifty pages. Okay, so I'm closing. I'm kind of closing in on the middle and end. Okay, yeah. so so we. I would like to do a podcast with you about that. Book. Psychedelics, yeah, it's definitely yeah. definitely good. And and a little, some of it is going to rub people the wrong way because I think for me, my experience when I to psychedelics and have done them, that it kind of exposes a little bit of the shallowness of a certain form of identity politics. Because when I look deeply inside myself, I see how mixed we all are and how we're all this kind of internal kaleidoscope of different voices and people who we've internalized. So it makes politics more obviously kind of like a sports team mentality, like an us versus them, blue shirt versus red shirt. And I understand that from like a sports team because I play sports. But in terms of literature and art, that's not really how people actually are. So that's one, one thing that'll be maybe troublesome in the book. But in terms of other resources that people should, should take a look at, definitely take a look at Mik- Mikhail Bakhtin's work and Rebelu and His World. So he talks about the carnivalesque. I would say take a look in terms of some really good stuff as Winnicott, Playing in Reality. That's a great book. Definitely take a look at Andre Breton's work. Uh, all, all
0: these books are on the floor in
1: front of us yeah, right now for the listeners. The, the Surrealist manifestos, really, really, really good stuff. My
0: summer reading list.
1: Yeah. I mean, none of that is like chill and easy, <laughs> but it's definitely- Okay, so it's
0: my winter reading list.
1: Yeah. I would say for men who are definitely struggling with patriarchy and kind of coming to a sense like, oh, maybe patriarchy is not just the enemy of women. It's my enemy too. You're going to say bell hooks? Yes, bell hooks and Male Fantasies. It's two volume series of books by a West German author analyzing his fascist Nazi father. Ooh. Yeah. What what
0: what is it called?
1: It's called Male Fantasies, volumes one and two. And his his last name is Thuilet. I'm not pronouncing it right, but we can have the link on the show. Last but not least, I say anyone, please take a look at Asada Shakur's book. It is such a, she, she is so funny and so insightful but really honest about, you know, her journey from the South to the North, but also her journey from naivete to activist. I mean, I think it's just, it's just incredible. So that's, that's up there. Definitely take a look for colored girls who've considered suicide when the rainbow is enough because it's a poetic choreo poem and the images in there, when you really, really look at the images in there, they are just sustaining images that, that last for a long, 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 long time. And the last, actually, I'll offer is an indigenous writer who's, who got into a little bit of Me Too trouble, but I, I am not going to turn away his book Flight, because I think his book Flight deeply, deeply examines some of the pain and contradictions of contemporary Native American, U.S.-based Native American reservation culture, and the 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 constant ambivalence that that happens. It's really a powerful book. It's called Flight by Sherman Alexie. God, there's, I mean, there's so many. I could keep rattling off all day, so I'm going to stop. No, let me chill because I literally can keep going. I'm looking at my bookshelves right now. Well, you, you, are, you are the professor. So yeah, I'm sorry. Got, I just know. gave you
0: a whole syllabus. No, it's perfect. It's perfect. And we'll have those all in the show notes. Well, so I mentioned my essay, The Unbearable Whiteness of Burning, and my conclusion was not how to solve the issue of inclusivity at Burning Man. That wasn't the conclusion. The conclusion was Burning Man is a space where we go to become uncomfortable so that we can grow. Someone, a fellow whose play name is Juice, says Mm -hmm. that Burning Man is contrived hardship to expedite bonding, which is a great expression for Burning Man. But the goal is to be uncomfortable to break through certain things. Yeah. And if the goal of Burning Man is to be uncomfortable, then being silent about race, silent about climate, silent about the problematic aspects to our hedonistic Bacnalia, yeah. that's that's a way of choosing comfort over discomfort. And so my conclusion for that essay is like, let's keep having conversations where we feel uncomfortable and where we own our lived experience even if we do feel ashamed about it or we do feel like I should be a better white person than I'm being I should be a better man than I'm being or whatever like if you never say it then it 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 invites complacency and so for me with the show it's like I want to say it I want to talk about it and where possible I want to say for a listener what should we do what should we read what how should we try and for someone like yourself you've done a lot of work on this so you're not going to be you're not going to know the formula or the protocol for everybody but you've studied you've worked with it I'm very heartened to know that you believe in the festival, because I do too. Yeah, I do. I do too. Yeah. And I believe in Burning Man, and I believe that we have the power, particularly to make participatory events, we have the power to make them more transformative for the collective, not yeah. just for our own personal wellness.
1: Yeah, I, I was for a while, especially during the hardest parts of the reporting, I was arrogant and a leftist chauvinist and i did not i was like oh fuck the festival this festival is just a bougie white thing in the desert blah 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 blah. the ticket price and but i kept going back i kept going back like the my feet voted i kept going back because i needed it and i need the festival and i need the freedom and the joy and the love that it brings the spark the light at the end of the tunnel that i keep running towards and then eventually it's not like you actually get there you actually get to the light and then you see the art cars and And the people running around with LED, and everyone, and people are just joyful, and so, and just strangers become family members within the course of a night. Well, and and
0: and what you need most is what you are best
1: to give. Yeah,
0: like that's the dharmic, that's the karmic to dharmic pipeline. Yeah, is like what you are needing, and you crave it, and it 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 washes you clean, and it helps you out. Then then that's what we give. That's what we give to others, and that's what I love in your kind of central thesis is to bring the carnival where it's needed most. Yeah, and that includes Ohio. Yes, that's not it really just, does. That's not just the favelas. It's also for the poor working class white folks who are furious and confused and feel like race is being used against them to delegitimize their pain. And of course, then they go to Yeah, I,
1: like the, the, the way I see the white working class is that they're the prodigal son of history. So at first they made this fostering bargain with the ruling class, right? Like you get white, white privilege. And that as long as U.S. capitalism had the conveyor belt, they could keep moving. The Italians came to New York. They lived in the slums. The Irish came to the, to the New York. The Jews came to the New York. The Germans came. Everyone came to New York, and like, they had the conveyor belt. Whiteness was a conveyor belt, but then that conveyor belt broke down because capitalism doesn't give a fuck about you. Rich people don't give a fuck about you. It doesn't matter what color they are. They don't give a fuck about poor people, and that conveyor belt broke down, and then now they're angry, and they should be angry, actually. That's kind of incredibly paternalistic to be like white working class, you shouldn't be angry. Yeah, you fucking should be angry. But they deserve to be seen as a prodigal son. So when the prodigal son in the Bible went out and spent all of his father's wealth and he came back, his brothers actually were angry because his father said, no, come on back, come on back. And his brothers were like, he squandered all all of his wealth. Why are you gonna let him come back? He was living with pigs and shit, right? And the father was like, no, he, he's my son. And I think that hits hard for me having a child and thinking no matter what my kid did, I would always want them to come back. Like if they were in trouble. And I see them and I think, man, they're in trouble. They, don't, they can't see that they're in, how bad in trouble they are. And they're looking to people who are going to dig their grave even deeper. I don't want that for them. As a human being, I don't want that for them. So I reach out and I think they need to be invited back like the prodigal son, have a seat at the table and there's a festival. And the father threw a festival, he threw a big feast. So for me, it's like, let's, I think we need a festival. Like welcome them back, welcome them back. like, And we need everyone. Cause there's no way we're gonna change the world from fossil fuels to green without the whole working class, white included. What, we're gonna do it by ourselves? Like we need everyone. Like, all the millions of men and women that are going to have to transform our city grids, put these tall jet turbines to generate electricity, rewire everything, remake the cars, put solar panels over every fucking thing. Like, we need everyone. And that's part of the festival, too. So you have to say we need you. And that's not just a rhetorical thing. It's not just a political thing. It's not a manipulative thing. It's just a fact. We need them. You, you gotta bring them back. And you, you can't fucking do that sadomasochist thing, whipping thing anymore. Like you gotta be like, look, you guys are the new slaves, but we're, we're welcome you back home and throw a festival and say, this is the big joyful festival. Now the family is complete. Because if you really believe in the human family, then you have to believe everyone's part of the family. And you gotta welcome everyone back to the table.
0: Nick, that's a beautiful place for us to land on this lovely New York Monday where the rains finally stopped. It's a real pleasure to talk to you, and I, I appreciate your insight. I appreciate your vibe. You got a great vibe, and I'm glad that we're friends now. That's a really nice part about doing a show like this is yeah. you. You, there's an intimacy to this kind of conversation where there's friendships that are that are born, and then who knows? Maybe we throw a festival sometime. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show, Nick. That was beautiful. You feel good? I
1: feel great. Yeah, I feel good, too. That was really yeah, good. I feel good, too. Thank you. He I knew it was going to be good. Too. Yeah, no, that was really... I had I
0: had a feeling. I had a feeling it was going to be a really, a really fun one. Thank you.
1: Thank you. I feel... I'm, let me just give you a hug.
0: Yeah, let's have a hug.
2: Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you liked the show, you can support it
0: by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved... You can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at Patreon lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival and I'll see you on the dance floor.